0: This is Brent Jensen, you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. Brought to you by Pariah Pickups, making great things happen down in Detroit, Rock City. I love them. Check them out at pariahpickups.com. And if you want to be a supporter of the No Sleep Till Sudbury podcast, go to patreon.com slash Brent Jensen Music. Lots of fun, unreleased, and behind-the-scenes stuff there, plus merch. Patreon.com at Brent Jensen Music. Okay. I am excited about this week's show because Coney Hatch's Andy Curran is my guest, and he is a terrific guy. I've been a Coney Hatch fan since 1982, so it was great to connect with Andy. Not just about the Coney Hatch stuff, but also his solo work too. We have very similar musical tastes as it turns out, and it was like talking to an old friend. I really enjoyed the chat. Here he is. Andy Curran, it is my distinct pleasure to host you today, sir. I've been a fan of Coney Hatch since 82. And uh, I was saying earlier, I, I used to drive my university dorm mates nuts by blasting nickels and dimes from your first solo record over and over and over again. So it's a, it's a privilege to have you, man. Thank you very much for taking the time.
1: Thank you for having me on, buddy, and um, thanks for the shout-out on nickels and dimes and blasting. Uh, it's funny, you said you like to blast music. One of my, If somebody says to me, Andy, would you mind signing a CD or a record, I usually put my signature and then three words underneath it, play this loud. <laughs> <laughs> So you were following my, my, uh, my, my lead on that one already by driving your roommates nuts. And then that was always a fun song to play. And just a quick note on nickels and dimes. Mm-hmm. You know, Coney Hatch, Coney Hatch just played. We, we hadn't done this in a very long time. Uh, I think it was a couple of years ago when British Lion came to town and Steve Harrison and I had struck up a friendship back when when Coney Hatch and Iron Maiden had played together. And we've stayed in touch ever since. And and I can honestly say without any danger of name dropping that Steve is one of my closest and oldest friends. Mm-hmm. And he had called up and said, hey, I'm coming to I want to play Canada and I want to play I think he said something like, I can only spend seven nights there. I want to do five gigs in six days. And I was like, dude, I haven't done that since I was like 19. (laughs) Right? So, um, so we ended up putting it together and we played three shows in Ontario and two shows in Quebec and literally five nights in a row. And um, I was even wondering whether my voice was going to hold out because, you know, Carl and I, we're, were used to being weekend warriors and Carl sings a lot more than I do, but my voice held up. Long story short, uh, the first night we stuck around and watched British Lion and Steve had said to me, oh, by the way, there's a little surprise halfway through our set. You should let me know what you think of our set. And in the middle of their set, they did a version of Nickels and Dimes. And, and he, said it's what, he said, it's one of my favorite songs that you ever wrote, Andy, and um, we're playing it live. And it was part of the, the British Line set.
0: You know, it's really funny. I was there that night, too. I, I went to see that. Carl was on the show, I think, about a week before. And okay. I went down to see you guys, and I thought that the venue changed. I think at the last minute or something. So it, it did.
1: It did. There was a strike. There was a. If originally we were supposed to play the Queen Elizabeth Theatre in mm-hmm. Toronto, and there was a labor strike down there with the IATA union, so they weren't letting anybody load in or, or any shows happening there.
0: Yeah, and you guys blew the roof off the place. You, you opened with "We Got the Night." It just crushed. It was a fantastic show.
1: Thank you, man. But, but Thank you.
0: It it freaked me out when I heard Nickels and Dimes watching British Lion. I couldn't believe it.
1: Yeah. And he's been pretty complimentary about a couple of the songs, specifically from that, what I like to call my No Tattoos record. Mm-hmm. And um, he's, he's always been very complimentary about Kony and, you know, one of the reasons we were invited. On that um, Peace of Mind tour back in the 80s was Mm -hmm. because we found out that Steve and a couple of the guys in the band really liked Devil's Deck and they had seen us on MTV and they were fans of the band. So we kind of, you know, it wasn't like these backroom dealings with agents and managers. How do we get on this tour? We were actually invited out on that tour um, with Iron Maiden because they, they were Fans of Coney Hatch, and we had a pretty good profile back then with Kerrang! magazine and yeah. Sounds, and so the British press were very kind to us, which I think with Maiden being a British band, they were they were well aware of us. Um, and uh, yeah, we're we're still really good friends with all of those guys. As a matter of fact, I traded emails with Adrian, congratulating him about uh, on his new solo record that mm-hmm. he's done, um, which I think is really really cool. I had no idea that Adrian Smith could sing like that, so. For anybody listening, you should go. I think uh, the, the other fellow that he joined up with, his last name begins with a K, Richie. Uh, maybe you might know it. He's another notable guitar player. But but look up Adrian oh. Smith, and he's got yeah
0: Richie Cotton.
1: That's who it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's it, it, it's Smith and Co- or however you pronounce that name, but it's a great record.
0: I had no idea about that. Richie Cotton's a great yeah. player. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. cool. I um like how cool
1: is that that
0: Steve Harris actually handpicked you.
1: It was it was pretty nuts. We there was so many times during the course of the early days with Coney Hatch Brent that I, I honestly was pinching myself going like where how did i get here this is this is like this is like a dream come true right so and starting you know like i'll sort of identify a couple really big shows and big events that happened in in the touring world for us where it was just like oh my god i can't believe this right so the Mm -hmm. first one obviously was when we played with ted nugent and cheap trick was the very first big big outdoor or or like large menu that we played at the cne grandstand and mm-hmm. and, that, and you know it's no longer there but it, it but for younger folks who don't know what, what was there it was a giant football field where the argonauts played and the blue jays played but there was a grandstand and lots of big shows there i remember seeing you know aerosmith and peter Frampton yeah. there back in the day so Playing there with Nugent and Cheap Trick, who are two of my favorite bands, <laughs> I I had I had posters of those bands up on my wall, yeah, you know, and it was yeah. just like, oh my God, right, we're playing with the Nugent and Cheap Trick, and then later on that year, we land the Judas Priest tour for, scream, for Screaming for Vengeance, and Judas wow. Priest were argue, arguably one of the biggest bands in the, on the planet at that time, so we went from playing the Gasworks and the Young, young Station and Tony's East and Tony's West and and jump in a van and you know head to the u.s and we're playing in front of 12 to eighteen thousand people every night you know yeah. and it was just like how did this happen right and um obviously our exposure on mtv with devil's deck and our radio play um being signed to polygram in the u.s it was all part of that but um, you know, Ray Daniels, who was our manager, also managed Rush. So he was able to immediately get us in with all of the big boys. And and I knew that that, that following year in 1983, and we had our second album out at that time, still with a lot of airplay and in, in videos on MTV, the Maiden Camp were aware that we had opened for Judas Priest as well. Mm. And so that was a good feather in our cap. And, I ended up striking up a pretty good friendship with Steve when he came into our dressing room like third or fourth gig and said, I understand one of you guys plays tennis. And, and maybe <laughs> may, maybe they saw me walk into the rink with my tennis bag because I would bring it out on the road with me just to kill time on the road. And, yeah. you know, for people who, who haven't been um, out on the road touring, like they just see the glory moments when you're on stage for an hour or something, but all the driving and the boredom of being in your hotel room and going to shopping malls and just watching tv and trying to kill time so um i brought my tennis rackets out on the road and i would um get into a city and i would look in the yellow pages pre-internet right and and go where's the tennis where's the tennis club and then phone up and say is there anybody there that that i could you know have a hit with for an hour so So Steve and I struck up a friendship. He had his tennis rackets on the road, and whatever opportunity we had to either play before the shows um, during the day or late morning or on a day off, that's what we would do. And it just, and then, then the friendship blossomed from there and anytime they came to town uh, or in Canada, you know, I, I, I would go out on a couple of the dates or go to Quebec and play some tennis with them or go to Nashville or something like that. But um, wow. it became the epicenter of our friendship was playing tennis together. But yeah, what a great shot in the arm to be invited out on those tours and Fastway, There was a band called fast. Yeah, the yeah. 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 Um, with fast Eddie Clark from motorhead yeah. and, and, and the lead vocalist, um, Dave, King. Uh, Dave King, actually went on to be in, tell me what band he's in, a 90s band. They did quite well, I think.
0: He was a young 18-year-old red-headed kid with an excellent voice on that record. It was yeah. called All Fired Up. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah, but... But then then later on, after Fastway broke up, he joined another band that was quite successful. And I don't have my laptop in front of me. You might have it. But anyway, look up Dave King, and and he went on to be in a very popular 90s band as well.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, I love that record. All Fired Up's fantastic. That was their second one. They had two, and then they broke up.
1: And it's interesting when you get that reputation of having been out, you know, I'm talking like long runs with both of those bands. Mm -hmm. We were out on the road with Judas Priest for easily two to two and a half months, same with Iron Maiden doing all through the States and Canada. Um, We did the same thing with Accept and with Crocus. So those, those were fun dates, but a lot of one-offs too, even more on the sort of, I have a poster, I had a poster on my wall of that artist and they were, you know, like when we opened up for Edgar Winter, Edgar Winter was oh. probably one of, one of my all-time favorite artists and I had all his records and I loved Frankenstein at Free Ride and, yeah. and Rick Derringer. So got to open up for Edgar, um, got wow. to open up for Peter, Peter Frampton, Ed, Eddie Money, Joe Perry Project and Frank Marino. I wow. mean, some of these bands, just I was just like we were we were like kids in a candy shop you know just (laughs) kidding sharing sharing a stage with some of your heroes doesn't happen every day but it, it did for us and and I'm really thankful for a lot of that stuff that happened in the early days
0: those are some terrific memories that's incredible I didn't know some of those bands I didn't know you played with some of them
1: wow yeah wow yeah
0: the thing that I was going to say earlier, um, actually before that fast way, uh, their drummer was Jerry Shirley, who was, uh, he was from humble pie. He was fantastic too.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think the bass player was also with humble pie, the rhythm section. I could be wrong. Charlie mm. something, but, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Really yeah. sweet guys. And, um, and, uh, we got along with, with, um, Dave cause he was our age. Um, uh, some of the, some of the, like Eddie Clark and, and Jerry were a little bit older, but, mm-hmm. uh, there was a lot of camaraderie on that tour and we'd hang out and get into trouble with maiden and with fastway. Um, so it, was, it was good. Um, another band I forgot to mention is the tubes. I was a really oh, wow. big fan of the tubes and we did some shows with the tubes out West. And I guess that was a bit of a, a, a weird bill, but, um, you know, and triumph was another one that we oh. played with out West. And so, uh, I look back on those days and it made us a better band too because you know when you're playing in front of those bands um there's no room for just you know getting up there and doing a half-assed job you 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 have to earn your right to stay there or you're going to get pelted off the stage right? Oh yeah
0: for sure Yeah well and you guys yeah. managed to hang on like how many dates did you do with Maiden 40
1: Um yeah I would say probably uh, easily 40 dates same yeah. with um same with Judas Priest and you know, we were warned by Rob Halford um, at the beginning of the tour. He came in at the first, uh, on the first show and welcomed us to the tour and said, mm-hmm. I gotta, I gotta warn you guys, um, and with all due respect, I'm going to tell you that our fans hate all of the opening acts. You guys, <laughs> they're, they're going to berate you for the first three songs, but you just got to put your head down and work through it. And he wasn't lying. I mean, there were some cities that, for the first couple songs, we had kids in the front row um, giving us the finger, you know, mm-hmm. yelling obscenities at us, holding up signs that said "We want Saxon." Um, you know, because Saxon oh. had toured before us and yeah. um, throwing tennis balls at us and in in and, and and cutlery and, oh. and you name it, all of those kinds of things are thrown at us, right? But it was the the battle of the of the fittest to stay yeah. on there. It was, those were, those were really really great days, man. We had a we had a blast.
0: Wow, who knew that it would be that? You know, I can I can see people chirping you from the crowd and stuff like that, but throwing cutlery at you.
1: Yeah, Good yeah. God. Oh, that's okay, man. That's okay. You got to do oh. what you got to do to stay on there, right? But I, I do think it made us a, a better band because it was just like, I, I'll draw a parallel. I, um, I got to see Metallica play at the Castle Donington Festival and mm-hmm. and there were kids that were literally throwing bottles in sods of grass and mud at them. Yeah. And they just they just let it hit them like they were warriors. And it's almost a sign of, of respect if you can get through it. Like I said, I think we earned our stripes and, and uh, made us a better band.
0: Yeah, there are stories about uh, Donington where bottles of urine were used as projectiles and, and oh yeah
1: oh i i, w- I wasn't going to bring that up but they were being tossed at the band for sure like full bottles. said so that the, the mostly guys would would take a leak in and put the cap on and then throw it at the band
0: yeah and so yeah. you know that that was a huge problem for a lot of bands and, and motley crew said you know what we're going to turn this around on them we're going to we're going to invite them to throw stuff at us and we're going to you know show the crowd that we actually like it and they did <laughs> i don't know if they liked it or not but they said no come on throw it and yeah. uh, th- they won the crowd over and they had a great show. Wow. So, you know, yeah. same same thing as Metallica. They just kind of, you know, stood the ground. And I think it's just one of those kind of rites of passage, right? In in England, maybe.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. But, you know, when you're playing with the big boys, I mean, we did, we did, even when we were out with Maiden, or sorry, Priest at, at the beginning, mm-hmm. it took us like two shows to realize that we should probably dress in black every night, <laughs> like our, our, Our colors and our bright red, you know, call it bright red pants on. And I had a white leather vest, and I was like, you know, no, this ain't going to cut it. We're going to, we're going to, when in Rome, do as the Romans. And so we did, and we got through it.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's funny. (laughs) (laughs) What I was going to say earlier was Kerrang, speaking of England. So I was a big uh, reader of Kerrang back in the 80s, too. And I noticed that your re-release, I think Rock Candy put it out uh, in 2005, the first record. Kerrang, was was it Howard Johnson who wrote the liner notes for that re-release on Rock Candy? Yeah. Yeah.
1: You're absolutely right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I, I love that magazine when I was a kid.
1: You know, they they had a real affection for Canadian bands. You know, at the time that we were being written about, Anvil was making a real name for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Killer Dwarves were another one at that time, later on with Brighton Rock and um, a little bit with Honeymoon Sweet, But they really liked the, the hard rock Canadian bands. Kick Axe was another one. Yeah. So, you know, we we just got lumped in there with the, with those bands and they were really kind to us.
0: There was one particular writer, and I want to say his name started with, I, I think his first name was Paul, but he loved Lee And he was
1: Paul Suter. That's Paul it. Suter. Paul was Suter. His name. That, yep. That's
0: right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. He was a big Lee Aaron fan. I remember that. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah.
1: He's a good guy. I remember Paul.
0: But you know what? I mean, the, the records were so good, Andy. You couldn't ask for more, really. Devil's Deck and Monkey Bars, Hey Operator on one record. Plus, you know, We Got the Night and everything else. It was a fantastic record.
1: Well, thank you for saying that, buddy. And then, you know, they say there's a there's an old saying that bands have a lifetime to write their first album, and not so much <laughs> on the follow-up ones. That's right. So you know, we, we had we had quite a lot of time to gather those the, the songs for that first record, and then you're under the you're under the crunch about writing up the fall fo- writing the following records, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, that like uh, The Devil's Deck and Monkey Bars and Hey Operator and Stand Up, they've sort of become a staple for our shows now, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Stand Up too, Love that tune. Yeah. Yeah. I was just listening to it a week ago. It's a great record. I mean, I, I love all three, but the first one is, is certainly my favorite for sure.
1: Thank you for saying that, man.
0: Oh, you're welcome. Now on that topic you uh, have got some new product available Coney Hatch has a new record live at the Elma combo and it's on vinyl and CD the cool thing about this is that each copy each and every copy has been hand stamped and autographed by all four Coney Hatch members is that correct you Carl Dave Ketchum and newcomer Sean Kelly
1: yeah you're absolutely right and And You know, be careful what you wish for, because I came up up with this concept I told the boys in the band that I actually own the bootleg um, version of the Cars at the Elma Combo. And I'm old enough that I can tell you I was at that show the very first time the Cars played in Toronto. They played at the Elma Combo. And... Shortly after they played there, somebody got a hold of a recording. I don't know if it was on Chum FM or whatever it was, but they ended up, you know, if you search the record stores, you could find this bootleg white album cover with a rubber stamp of the logo. And then inside was a photocopy of the, of the set list and the record was blank white. And I said to the boys in the band, like we, we were talking that we had never done a live record and, and the fact that our set kind of incorporates songs from Coney Hatch, debut all the way to, to the Coney Hatch 4, mm-hmm. we thought it was a bit of a mini best-up, so uh, I brought the album, I showed it to the guys, and they said, yeah, this is a great idea. Well, COVID added an extra challenge, because normally it would have been a pretty easy task to get everybody to autograph it if we were doing shows together, but literally the white sleeves arrived at my house, I signed them, put them in a box sent them up to Thunder Bay, Dave signed them, put them in a box, sent them to Halliburton to Carl, he put them in a <laughs> box and drove them to, to to Sean Kelly in Toronto, Sean signed it, then he brought it to me, um, my daughter and I and a few friends and family, we got some tequilas in us and started hand stamping them and putting their records in, And like it, it reminded me of the King of the Dwarfs. I the was the just thinking Paul, that, right? that is yeah, so funny yeah.
0: when they're making the actual vinyl record and pressing it and everything.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and and so literally every one of those records passed through each member of Coney Hatch's hands. And, um, there's a lot of TLC put in, but the record Vic Florencia mixed it. He's a Juno award winning uh, mixer engineer and mm-hmm. Doug McClement, who, who was the engineer back in the old days at the Elma Combo, also an award winning guy. He was the engineer. So we're pretty, we're pretty proud of how that record sounds too.
0: Yeah. Good. Well, I can't wait to listen to my copy. It's going to be fantastic. And best of luck with that. It's on CD too. Is that right?
1: Yeah, we did. Our, our merch guy said, you know, some of your fans are at the vintage that they would probably like this on CD. So we, we, after the fact, we um, reached out to a company that are going to do the CD version for us for those who still have a CD player and like to drive around in their car. So the CDs mm-hmm. are going to be coming shortly after, but all the vinyl is done and, and it's being mailed out and it's available. Um, the unsigned copies are, I think um, the unsigned copies are available on, on our merch store as well, but most of the signed ones mm-hmm. um, limited to the first 100 are, are going fast. I, I don't think there's too many of them left.
0: Mm, okay. Good to know. So listeners, get those. Pick those up. You're in for a treat. And Sean Kelly. You know, I was was thinking about that show you guys played with British Lion and and Sean Kelly. I don't know if it was the Toronto show your first show in that string?
1: Um, The Toronto show was the first show with British Lion, but Sean had played a handful of dates with us. He had played a show with us at the Burlington Sound of Music, and we did a couple shows out west. And he had worked with Carl Dixon, with Carl's solo band. And we, we found out just in working with Sean that that he was a really big Coney Hatch fan mm-hmm. and he's younger. He's younger than us and had listened to all our records. so he he did a really diligent job of learning songs, you know note for note. Oh, yeah. and um, and he's such a great guy and a really gifted musician. and you know, Steve had some issues with his uh, with with a lot of work that he was doing and touring schedules and, and we found out pretty quick that a lot of it, was a conflict, you know, so we asked Sean if he would do some live shows with us, and um, we -hmm. haven't looked back since, so it's, it's been a fun ride with him.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. He's a, he's a great yep. guy. I've known him over the years. He, he's a fantastic guy and a, a fantastic guitar player too, that what I was going to make reference to was during that show, he was about to play the solo for monkey bars, which is very challenging. And so what he did, yep. he, he walks to the center of the stage and he makes the sign of the cross <laughs> on his, <laughs> you know, like, here we go. And he, but, but he nailed it. And you know, the crowd yeah. cheered and, and it was a cool moment.
1: Well, he and and um, I know I, I think so too. I think he did a great job in, in learning that solo. But he was adamant about certain solos, like that he said are very definitive. And and um, and Steve had written, and he wanted to pay tribute to that. So on Devil's Deck and Monkey Bars or sorry, Monkey Bars and mm-hmm. Hey Operator, some of the more recognizable solos, he learned them note for note. And yeah. he said, I'm I'm not going to ad lib. I'm gonna. Um, those songs are part of the fabric of of my childhood, so I'm going to learn every, every single note
0: on there. All right, Andy and I had to pause our conversation at this point because he was called away by none other than friend of the show, Rick Emmett, and the guys in Triumph, believe it or not. They're working together on a cool new Triumph project, and our schedules overlapped, so Andy had to cut it short, but he is back next week to take up where he left off and talk about the songs that make his skin vibrate. And he's got a great list. You don't want to miss it. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Andy Curran. Until next time, folks, take good care.
1: Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No
0: Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon worldwide.